It is The Burt Cohen Show. The dream certainly has taken a lot of hits in recent years. America has moved far from being the republic it was intended to be and is becoming a lot more of a plutocracy. Something needs to be done. Our economy is incredibly unfair these days. Things are worse, or at least as bad as they were in the infamous Gilded Age back in the 1890s. Well, at least one person is taking it on, and I'm hoping he's going to run for president. I'm very pleased to have with us Senator Bernie Sanders, independent from Vermont. Senator Sanders, thanks for being with us. My pleasure, Bert. Well, on December 2nd, Senator Sanders outlined a progressive economic agenda to reverse a 40-year decline of the American middle class and the growing gap between the very rich and everyone else in these United States. In a Senate floor speech, Sanders detailed measures to create millions of new jobs, raise wages, protect the environment, protect, uh, provide health care for all. He said the most significant f- question facing the American people is, are we prepared to take on the enormous economic and political power of the billionaire class, or we can, do we continue to slide into economic and political oligarchy? Well, again, thanks for being with us, Senator Sanders. Conventional wisdom is that Americans want their presidential candidates to very carefully hew to the middle of the road and that they need to come from a state with a big block of electoral votes. As the 2016 campaigns gear up, is this still true? And or if, if it's not true that people want to go to the middle, why not? Uh, speak to that if well, you would, well, please. Let me tell you why not. I mean, in some points in American history, that may very well be true, but not at this particular moment, I think. Uh, as you've indicated, what we're looking at is a middle class which is collapsing. Uh, and, and I use that word advisedly. Uh, median family income today is $5,000 less than it was in 1999. Uh, for adjusted uh, income, the uh, average male worker, the median male worker today, makes $700 less than he made 41 years ago in inflation-adjusted dollars. Imagine that. So you have 41 years have come and gone. Productivity has significantly increased. People are working longer hours for low wages, and they are making less in real dollars than they made 41 years ago. Women are making less in real dollars than they made uh, in 2007. So while the middle class is disappearing, and while we have more people living in poverty today than almost any time in American history, 95% of all new income generated in the economy today goes to the top 1%. Top 1%. You have the top 1% owning more wealth than the bottom 90%. You have one family, the Walton family of Walmart, one family owning more wealth than the bottom 
40%. So I think when you ask me, do people want to go to the middle? No, I think what people want is a government which is going to start to represent the middle class and working families and not just the billionaire class who contributes so much money into political campaigns and have all kinds of lobbyists uh, throughout Capitol Hill. On both sides of the aisle, they have tremendous, tremendous influence, and it seems that a lot of the uh, senators and members of uh, the House uh, kowtow to their interests. And we know that there's a job problem. Even right-wing Republicans claim to care about job creation. They argue that the top 1% are the job creators, and it seems a lot of Americans actually buy this. Do you see evidence that people care about the worst income divide since the Gilded Age? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I mean, in terms of the job situation, where the confusion is, is official unemployment is 5.8%. Real unemployment, if you include those people who have given up looking for work and those people who are working part-time when they want to work full-time, a whole lot of them, real unemployment is 11.5%. Do you know what youth unemployment is? Youth unemployment is over 18%. We hear a lot of talk about Ferguson, Missouri. African-American youth unemployment is over 30%. So the American people understand that. They understand that unemployment is too high, and they also understand that many of the new jobs that are being created are low-wage jobs and often part-time jobs. So what we have got to do is build an economy in which we're creating millions of decent-paying jobs, and there are really concrete ways that we can do that. Well, let's go right into those concrete ways. You have a 12-point plan, as you presented to your Senate colleagues. I wonder if you could uh, take us through that a little bit. Absolutely. Well, for a thought, I mean, everybody, you know, New Hampshire borders on Vermont. We're together in this thing. And I can tell you that in Vermont, many of our bridges are in absolute disrepair. Our roads need a whole lot of work. Our water systems, our wastewater plants, uh, airports all over this country need a whole lot of work. The truth of the matter is that the infrastructure of America is crumbling. And the American Society of Civil Engineers tell us we need to invest $3 trillion to bring our infrastructure up to par, our rail system to be competitive where they are in Europe, for example. If we invest $1 trillion, Bert, do you know how many jobs, decent paying jobs, we can create rebuilding our country and making us more efficient and productive one trillion dollar investment, which is one third of what we invested in the war in Iraq that we never should have gotten into in the first place. One trillion dollars will create 13 million decent paying jobs. And that is, in my view, exactly what we should be doing. Imagine all over this country, people at work rebuilding our roads and our bridges and our water systems, what it will mean to this country and what it will mean to job creation. So I think that's a very significant step forward. Second of all, in my view, and I know not everybody agrees, yeah. I believe what the scientists are telling us, climate change is real. We have a window of opportunity to cut carbon emissions and protect our planet. And when we move to energy efficiency and sustainable energy, we can also create a very significant number of jobs. So those are two areas that we can create jobs. We also need to take a hard look at our trade policy. You know, in Vermont, and I'm sure in New Hampshire, when you go to the store and you go shopping for the holiday season, for example, where are the products made that you buy? Yeah. You tell me. China! Philippines! China. Everything is in China. Well, that's a direct result 
of disastrous trade policies, permanent normal trade relations with China, um, NAFTA, uh, CAFTA, a variety of trade agreements which have said to corporate America, hey, no problem, you can close down plants in New Hampshire and in Vermont, you can move to China, and you can bring your products right back into the United States. Well, the end result of that is that we have lost, uh, over the last number of years, millions of decent-paying jobs. We have lost some 60,000 factories, 60,000 factories since 2001, millions of decent-paying jobs. And I believe that you're not going to have a strong economy lest we rebuild our manufacturing base, put our people back to work at decent wages. And a key way to do that is to make very fundamental changes in the trade policies that we currently have, which work for corporate America, but they do not work for working people. We are talking on the Burt Cohen Show with uh, Senator Bernie Sanders, who hopefully is thinking about, and I believe he is, a run for president of the United States. The the money that you're talking about there, as you mentioned, a trillion dollars is one-third of the money that we basically burned and just threw away in the unnecessary war in Iraq. Wouldn't this increase our deficit? Where would. where would the money come from for all this? Well, I'll tell you where the money comes from. The money comes from, among other things, asking the largest corporations in this country and the wealthiest people in this country to stop paying their fair share of taxes. The last study that I have seen on this issue, Bert, tells me that one out of four large companies pay zero in taxes. We know some of the largest, most profitable corporations in America, General Electric being one of them, pays nothing, has paid nothing in taxes in recent years at all. We are losing about $100 billion a year because companies are stashing their money in the Cayman Islands and Bermuda and other tax havens. And we've got to end those outrageous loopholes. You know, back in 1952, uh, corporations provided about 32% of all federal tax revenue. Today, the number is around 10%. 10%. And we have got to say that at a time when corporate profits are at an all-time high, when the wealthiest people in this country are doing phenomenally well, you know what? They're going to have to pay their fair share of taxes so that, among other things, we can rebuild our crumbling infrastructure and put our people back to work. I believe we can. And I think that, you know, people see there's a lot of people out of work. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. Hello? You know, the the top 1% is... That is exactly right. No one denies that the infrastructure (laughs) is crumbling. Very few people deny that we need to move to sustainable energy and energy efficiency those are positive things. They make our country stronger, and we can create jobs doing it. And th- this country has a long history of populism, going back really to before the Constitution was enacted. It's been there. It hasn't necessarily prevailed. In fact, it, it, I don't know if it ever has. But it seems to me that in recent years, the right has had populism all to itself in, in the form of the uh, so-called Tea Party. What is the place of populism for progressives as we head toward 2016? And is there some real potential energy there, a new coalition of people on the right and left that might actually make some real change? To answer your question, Bert, I think very simply uh, the answer is yes. Uh, I think we can do it. Look, uh, I know there are conservatives listening to the show. But these conservatives, in many cases, just like anybody else, are working longer hours for low wages. They are wondering whether or not their kids can afford to go to college. They are upset about the high cost of health care. 
I think we can put together a coalition of working people that says that the United States government, we may not agree on every issue, but on economics at least, what we should be talking about is having the United States government developing legislation which works for the middle class and working families of this country and not just for the wealthiest people in America. Look, what the white wing here in Washington, D.C. wants to do is to cut Social Security, to cut Medicare, to cut Medicaid, to cut federal aid to education, and to give more tax breaks to the the rich and large corporations. Do you know what I think? I think there are relatively few people in America who agree with that agenda. And that is exactly what the uh, Republicans believe. That is that, that was what is in the, the Ryan budget that was passed in the House uh, last year. So I think we can rally the American people around an agenda that says, you know what? Every kid in this country who has the ability and the desire should be able to go to college regardless of his or her income. Is that a radical demand? I don't think so. <laughs> I think we can rally the American people in saying that a woman should not be receiving 78% of what a man earns for doing the same job. I don't think that's a radical idea. Raising the minimum wage, you know, in this last election where the Democrats did so poorly, there were four states where the issue of raising the minimum wage was on the ballot, conservative states, Alaska, Nebraska, and it won. People understand that the federal minimum wage of seven and a quarter an hour is a starvation wage, that we have to raise the minimum wage. So I think that we can put together an agenda that may not make sense to Wall Street. It may not make sense to the billionaire class, but it does make sense to working families in the middle class. We are talking on the Burt Cohen Show with Senator Bernie Sanders, currently independent from Vermont, who's uh, looking very seriously at uh, running for president. And you talked about 2014. It wasn't a great year for Democrats, let's face it. What did they do wrong, and what could they have done better? And as part of that question, most Democrats, it seems, are they won't talk about the issues you're talking I, about. Well, I'll tell you, you know, Bert, one of the things that drives me a little bit nuts, and I must confess, <laughs> <laughs> is, you know, politics is really all, not all that complicated. You know, if you are sick and you go to the doctor, what do you want from the doctor? You want the doctor to tell you why you're sick? You want them to prescribe a treatment to make you better, right? Seems reasonable. That's all that politics is about. We have to diagnose what the problems are facing America, and I think I've mentioned some of them. And then we need a course of treatment. We need a program to help address the problems that we face. If you listened to this 2014 election from coast to coast, uh, you heard all kinds of crazy things, but you heard very little discussion about how you rebuild a crumbling middle class how you deal with the growing gap between the very, very rich and everybody else, how you address the fact that the United States is the only major country on Earth that doesn't guarantee health care to all people as a right. Very little discussion on the need to make college affordable so that bright young people whose families may not have a lot of money should be able to go to college and not come out deeply in debt. Very little discussion on what the scientific community tells us is the great environmental crisis the planet faces, climate change, and what we can do to address that. So, you know, I think when you lay real issues out, you don't get involved in personality fights and negative advertising, you lay them out. These are the problems. These are the solutions. Yeah, I think we can put together a middle-class coalition uh, that will be very, very forceful. And I understand you've also been traveling in uh, the south of the United States, which isn't normally uh, recognized as a particularly deep blue area. What, what's your reception there? Well, it's everything that I told you. If you talk about 
people who are hurting. Yeah, we got a lot of people in Vermont who are hurting. We have people in New Hampshire hurting. You got a hell of a lot more people in Alabama and Mississippi and South Carolina and in North Carolina are hurting. Some of these states have the highest poverty rates in America. And I wanted to go there, and we'll go back there, to talk to working families in those states who are struggling and ask them why they keep voting for candidates who want to take away their health care, want to send their jobs to China, are not concerned about uh, them being able to send their kids to college. So, um, yes, I, I think... There is a lot of potential uh, in the southern part of our country. And Senator Bernie Sanders, we talked about some of your 12-point plan. I'm guessing there may be some other parts that uh, have yet to be addressed. Well, there, there, there is a lot in there. I mentioned I, I think that we need to join the rest of the industrialized world in having a Medicare for All yes. uh, health care program, a single-payer program. Uh, right now, Bert, uh, we, despite the modest gains of uh, the Affordable Care Act, we still have 40 million people who have no health insurance, and yet we end up spending almost twice as much per person on health care as do the people of any other nation. So I think we need to say that health care is a right of all people yes. and come up with a system that is cost-effective. And, of course, I don't think you'd get many campaign dollars from the uh, for-profit health insurance industry. Well, but and, and that's a very important point. You know, you asked why... Many candidates are not raising the right issues yes. in terms of the needs of working families. So the answer is we have a Citizens United Supreme Court decision in which the Koch brothers and other billionaires are spending huge amounts of money uh, electing uh, candidates who represent their interests. And I think there aren't all that many folks out there who want to take these guys on uh, and raise the issues that uh, the billionaire class is not comfortable with. But you would do that. Spe- I would do that. Speaking of which... Uh, I have to ask, when will you announce your plans for 2016? And, and well, pe- here, here's the story on that, Bert. You know, it's uh, when you undertake something like a campaign for president of the United States, that is a very, very uh, oh, far-reaching decision. It impacts your family. Yes. Uh, it impacts uh, your time. It impacts your life. And for me, what is most important is, you know, I've described some of what the agenda is. I think, and I fear very much, that this country is moving toward, call it an oligarchy, call it a plutocracy, but you're looking at almost all wealth and all power resting in a billionaire class. Now, that's my view. How many people in America are prepared to stand up to the billionaire class and fight back? And you know what? I honestly don't know, and that's what I'm trying to ascertain. Is Is there the kind of grassroots support that I would need for a strong campaign uh, in the United States. And that's what we're trying to figure out. And it does seem to me that some of the legitimate anger which has uh, shown itself in the Tea Party has been focused on government and, and not, frankly, I think, where it should be, which is on uh, these corporations that are shipping jobs overseas and destroying the economy. C- can it be turned around? Do you think you can help refocus well, I think you've that? asked exactly the right question. I think if you go to a lot of these Tea Party guys and you say, well, what do you think about a trade policy which sends your job to China, they'll say, no way. And I think many of these, and polling indicates, many of these Tea Party guys do not believe what the Republican leadership does in terms of making cuts in Medicare or uh, cuts in Social Security or cuts in education. So I think we have to figure out a way that we can work together. But I think at a time when tens of millions of people are working longer hours for low wages, when people are terribly worried about the future of their kids, 
and understanding that if we don't turn this economy around for the first time in the modern history of America, our kids are going to have a lower standard of living than we do. And that's, I don't think anybody wants to see that. So, you know, there's a lot of work to be done, but I think putting forward an agenda that speaks to the needs of working families, not the billionaire class, uh, can, in fact, uh, bring forth a whole lot of support. And what I've seen over the years is that, that it doesn't matter, left, right, Democrat, Republican, your average person is really looking for a candidate who stands up for what he or she believes in and fights for what he or she believes in. And I, I have to say, you got that in, uh, in spades. If people are listening in Concord area, in the Walpole area, how can they get in touch with uh, your efforts? How can they be uh, supportive or ask questions? There must be something to which you can point them on a website. Sure. Uh, we have a website called uh, Friends of uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, and we have a uh, Senate uh, campaign sure. um, office, which I've maintained, and the number is 802-862-1505. And people have... So, uh, if people certainly, New Hampshire, as you well know, Bert, oh, yeah. has a very important role in presidential politics. Absolutely. I've had the honor of uh, speaking to a number of groups in New Hampshire. expect I'll be back there soon. Uh, but anybody who's interested in helping out, we'd love to hear from them. Well, thank you so much for being with us. I uh, hope to talk to you again in the uh, near future. And uh, obviously, that is an incredible process of uh, becoming a human being, offering him or herself up to run for president. It's grueling, as anybody in New Hampshire has witnessed it, has known. And one, oh yeah, one last thing. People have been concerned that they might lose you from the Senate. You're not up for re-election until 2018, right? Yes, that's correct. Oh, that's a very important thing. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, thanks very much for the opportunity. Take care. Thank you. Ain't nothing like the real thing. Ain't nothing like the real thing, baby. Ain't nothing like the real thing. No, no. Ain't nothing like the real thing, baby. Ain't nothing like the real thing. No, honey. I've got your picture. Certainly, Bernie Sanders is the real thing. 
like him or not, he is the real thing for sure. We're going to switch topics just a little bit to uh, the American system of justice. Is it fair to uh, African Americans? What the heck is going on? We had the Ferguson decision and now a failure to indict in a case which was declared to be homicide in Staten Island. It's just amazing to me. Well, I'm pleased to have with us Marjorie Cohn, who's back with us. Marjorie, thanks. My pleasure, Bert. She is, once again, a criminal defense attorney, a professor at Thomerson, Thomas Jefferson School of Law, where she teaches criminal law, criminal procedure, evidence, and international human rights laws. She lectures throughout the world on human rights and U.S. foreign policy. She's also a news consultant for CBS News and a legal analyst for Court TV. She knows her stuff. She also provides legal and political commentary on BBC, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, oddly enough, and NPR. Well, again, thanks for being with us, Marjorie Cohen. Since the Ferguson grand jury decision to not indict Officer Darren Wilson for gunning down unarmed 18-year-old Michael Brown, protests have erupted across America and the world. And uh, Marjorie Cohen has taken time to read through the transcripts and has some serious concerns about the outcome of the process. And we're going to look very closely at the legal process of the grand jury. As you write, uh, uh, Marjorie, the standard of proof for a grand jury to indict is only probable cause to believe the suspect committed a crime. And it's an old phrase that a grand jury could indict a ham sandwich. What does that say about the Ferguson grand jury process that they did not indict Wilson, the grand jury process itself? Well, The St. Louis prosecutor, Robert McCulloch, handled this grand jury very, very differently than other grand juries. And, in fact, these grand jurors who refused to return an indictment against Daryl Wilson had been sitting on this grand jury since May. They had heard several cases. They knew the drill, and the drill in the grand jury proceeding is that the prosecutor comes in, presents just enough evidence to, sh- to convince the grand jury that there's probable cause to believe that the, the suspect committed a crime. It's not proof beyond a reasonable doubt, which is what you need to convict somebody at trial. That's a much higher standard, but just probable cause. And then the prosecutor asks the grand jury to return an indictment, and they do in virtually every case, almost every case. Um, but in this case, it was handled very differently. Um, the, jur- the grand jurors were presented with about three months' worth of physical and testimonial evidence, um, and they were not asked by the prosecutors to specifically indict. Basically, the, uh, the prosecutor said, uh, punted and said, you decide. But the way it was structured and manipulated um, it, it really led to the inevitable result of not indicting. And that was that um, the, the grand jurors were left to sift through the evidence on their own. Um, the transcripts indicate the prosecutors asked Daryl Wilson gentle leading questions designed to bolster his self-defense claim. For example, a prosecutor told Wilson at the grand jury, you felt like your life was in, in jeopardy and use of deadly force was justified at that point, in your opinion. So they're, they're, they're asking him these leading questions. But one of the most heinous things that the prosecution did was one of the assistant district attorneys, just before Daryl Wilson testified to the grand jury, 
handed out a written statute to the grand jurors. And this written statute was an old Missouri statute that had been overruled by the Supreme Court. And that statute said that basically um, an officer is justified in arresting somebody who is fleeing, even if that person doesn't pose a danger. This is an absolute misstatement of the law because in the Supreme Court case of Tennessee versus Garner, the Supreme Court held that an officer cannot arrest an unarmed felony suspect. And here Michael Brown was at most um, suspected of committing a petty theft of some cigarillos from the convenience store. Mm -hmm. But an officer, back to Tennessee versus Garner, an officer cannot arrest an unarmed felony suspect by shooting him dead unless the suspect threatens the officer with a weapon or there's probable cause to believe he committed a, a, a violent crime, basically. Um, and that was, and so they were misinstructed. They heard Daryl Wilson's testimony in the context of this erroneous statute. And then months later, the, I guess several weeks later, the district attorney um, told the grand jury, well, that statute is not entirely correct. It does not comply. Parts of it don't comply with the Supreme Court's uh, jurisprudence, and so and didn't say which part didn't comply. And then one of the grand jurors asked the prosecutor, "Does the Supreme Court case? Does the Supreme Court law take precedence over Missouri law?" And she refused to answer. She said, "You don't need to worry about that." So it was a setup from the beginning. It was wow. uh, it was manipulated so that the prosecutor would not get the political heat for not indicting, because the prosecutor could have indicted himself right. and, uh, and or taken it to a public preliminary hearing where everybody could have seen the evidence and, and it would be, you know, the witnesses would be cross-examined. But here, um, it was done in secret. And by the way, the only people present in a grand jury proceeding, a secret grand jury proceeding, are the prosecutors and the grand jurors. No judge. A judge never would have allowed the jurors to see that, um, that old statute. And... Um, there, there's cross-examination at a public trial or a public preliminary hearing, which is another way to get to trial other than the grand jury. Um, there was no cross-examination in the grand jury proceedings. So you have an officer who is suspected of killing an unarmed man, mm-hmm. and yet he submits to four hours of, of interrogation with no cross-examination without taking the fifth. He knew the fix was in. Um, that, that just doesn't happen. That is... So many aspects of what you just said uh, just are, are mind-blowing. Having worked at a law factory, you know, in the state senate here that, that made laws, and to understand the judicial process nowhere near as much as you understand it, Marjorie Cohen, it just, it's, it, it's mind-boggling that this happened. What, after the uh, killing happened back in, in August, I believe it was, what could have happened and and to ask that another way, what is the motivation, do you think, from looking at the actual process of the grand jury? Why did they go with the grand jury process? Was it the secrecy? or They could have done many other uh, uh, legal avenues, correct? Yes. The prosecutor has complete discretion whether to bring the case to a grand jury in private, one-sided, the way it was, or to go to a preliminary hearing, which is a public, open proceeding with cross-examination. You know, it's interesting because uh, in the O.J. Simpson case, it started out in the grand jury, and in an almost unprecedented move, the judge 
disbanded the grand jury and told and and uh, sent it to a preliminary hearing because of the massive pretrial publicity said it wouldn't wouldn't be fair and so in the public televised um preliminary hearing mark Furman, who was one of the officers right. uh testified um and and was cross-examined about possible racial bias, whether he had used the N-word in the past 10 years, oh, and he right. said no, he hadn't. And the fact that that preliminary hearing was, te- was televised and millions of people saw it brought out of the woodwork a couple of very, very important defense witnesses who said, oh, yes, Mark Furman did use the N-word and came in and testified and turned the entire focus of the trial away from O.J. Simpson's guilt and onto Mark Furman's racism, and the implication being that he planted the evidence at O.J. Simpson's house. So the fact that it's a public, um, open proceeding, right. and it's not always televised, but it could <laughs> be. I actually wrote a book about this, Cameras in the Courtroom, um, provides a level of fairness because of the, the adversarial testing, the cross-examination, both sides coming out, that the secret grand jury proceeding that's completely controlled by the prosecutor does not. We're talking about Ferguson, about the grand jury process. Is there evidence that that McCullough, uh, the prosecuting attorney, basically steered the grand jurors away from an indictment? What, what, what from looking at, at the the evidence that that you've seen, in, in what way did he steer it? Just the, the line of questioning for him, and many have suggested another part of that question that that McCullough should have recused himself from the case. Answer those two, if you could, please. Um, yes. Well, by giving, you know, setting Daryl Wilson's testimony in the context of this, uh, of the wrong law, which basically said you have to find that he didn't commit any crime, and the way that he was questioned, um, prosecutors asking uh, real softball questions, um, leading him, asking leading questions, leading him into uh, self, de- you know, a proof of self-defense, and the way the, the prosecutors went after the witnesses who said Michael Brown had his hands in the air. He was not going for a gun. Right, right. He was not charging the officer. He was surrendering. Um, those witnesses were cross-examined much more harshly. And, in fact, when Robert McCullough publicly announced the decision in a kind of a defensive press yeah, conference, yeah, which is much. almost never done, um, he himself characterized the evidence in the light most favorable to the officer. Um, the other thing about him recusing, recusing himself, yes. 7,000 residents in and near Ferguson signed a petition asking McCullough to re- recuse himself, and he refused. McCullough has a history of bias in favor of police who were involved in altercations with black men. Um, he had, McCulloch had mischaracterized testimony in a 2000 case in which two black men were killed after officers fired 21 shots at them. Mm. And as in the, the Michael Brown case, the reasonableness of the officer's use of deadly force was critical. In the 2000 case, the officers said the two victims were driving toward them, trying to run them down. McCulloch claimed that all the witnesses corroborated the officer's story, but a later federal investigation determined that the car was not moving forward and that only three of the 13 officers said the car was moving forward. And, and this, is, this is a real parallel to the Michael Brown case mm-hmm. because um, the, the whole issue of whether Michael Brown was charging right. at Officer Wilson when the officer fired the fatal shots into the top of Brown's head, bowed head, bowed head, 
was critical to the reasonableness of whether Wilson used deadly force. And um, as I said, when McCulloch announced the grand jury's decision, he characterized the witnesses who testified that Brown was charging the officer as being believable, but he dismissed the testimony of witnesses who said that Brown was surrendering. And McCulloch sounded like a defense attorney, Mm -hmm. not a prosecutor. The reason that this case should have gone to a jury trial was so that all the evidence could have come out and the jury could have decided in an open adversarial cross-examined proceeding. There was conflicting evidence on many of these issues, whether he was charging or surrendering, whether his hands were up, whether his hands were down, etc. And that is all, because there's such conflict in the evidence, that's why um, a jury should have gotten this case in a public proceeding and not a secret grand jury proceeding that uh, no one has confidence in, at least uh, at least most people, um, I think, uh, who, who really uh, are honest about it and about the racial implications um, are very disturbed about what happened. And again, we're talking about the uh, Ferguson grand jury uh, decision, which sure looked uh, like something other than justice to an awful lot of people. And again, we're talking with Marjorie Cohn, who uh, former president of the National Lawyers Guild, criminal defense attorney, who was a professor of law at the Thomas Jefferson School of Law. There was testimony from a witness who had been standing near Brown, who said that he, quote, watched a wounded Brown partially raise his hands and say, I don't have a gun before being fatally shot. What what happened to this testimony? Was it rejected because it was so different from the other witnesses? Was this uh, found to be uh, uh, not credible? Well, the the he was the Dorian Johnson was was with Brown at the time. He's okay. the only one who was right there, uh-huh. um, right next to him. He's uh-huh. the only living witness um, to to what happened there, and. Because of the way that the prosecutors presented the testimony of other witnesses who were further away and slanted it, basically, you know, brought it, brought out the testimony in a way that slanted it in favor of the officer, um, the the grand jury evidently did not give as much weight to Dorian Johnson's testimony, and uh, and he was a key witness. Um, He he said that um, Wilson um, was enraged that uh, that these two young men, Johnson and Brown, didn't obey his order to get on the sidewalk, and so Wilson threw his patrol car into reverse, and Wilson claimed that Brown prevented him from opening the door, but Johnson testified the officer smacked them with the door after hitting them, and Johnson described the, the later struggle as Wilson attempting to pull Brown through the car window by his neck and shirt and Brown pulling away, Johnson said he never saw Brown reach for Wilson's gun or punch the officer, and Johnson testified that he watched a wounded Brown partially raise his hands and say, I don't have a gun, before being fatally shot. Now, a jury um, might have looked at this testimony very differently, especially in light of the other witnesses' testimony being subjected to cross-examination, because there was no cross-examination of any of this testimony at the grand jury. That's amazing. It's just so hard to believe that there would be no cross-examination whatsoever. It, it just seems like uh, so amazingly unfair. Um, and, of course, many people thought that there should have been an indictment. But, frankly, no doubt some of that sentiment was based on emotion and, and not fact of law. But, but 
as, as a law professor and former president of the National Lawyers Guild, uh, you say there should have been an indictment and a, a jury trial. Is it possible that the grand jury's conclusions were correct, that they uh, that the process was indeed uh, up to snuff, that it was decent legal standards, that the proceedings really did show that uh, Officer Darren Wilson actually did fear for his life and that uh, maybe it was a, a justifiable killing. It, how possible is it that it was correct? Or are we just a, a lot of people acting uh, out of emotion? Well, we won't know. We, we will never know unless... The, unless these witnesses are tested in a public trial. Mm. Um, now, one of the possibilities, there's a Missouri statute that says that if the prosecutor is interested, and, and generally that means biased, um, then uh, there mm-hmm. can be a new grand, the, a judge can actually appoint um, a, a new, can, can convene a new grand jury. That's one possibility. Um, the other possibility is that Eric Holder, um, since the August, killing of Michael Brown has been launching a federal investigation into possible mm-hmm. federal civil rights charges. And, uh, and that is another possibility. Now, in a civil rights action, in a federal civil rights action, the government would have to pl- prove that Brown was deprived of his constitutional right to life because of his race. The, the statute reads, deprivation of rights under color of law. That means the officer was acting in, in his official capacity. And the government must also show that the officer willfully deprived Brown of his constitutional right to life. Um, you know, Wilson said, would, would say that race was not a motivating factor, and the jury would have to decide. And a lot of it would have to do with the makeup of the federal jury. Uh, boy, so that that still can happen. I mean, the, the grand jury decision is not the end of the line for this case. What, what may come next? I mean, you know, with the, with the uh, uh, O.J. Simpson uh, trial, yeah, he was found innocent, but then he he's, well, I'm not sure he's he's in jail now for it's other not, things. O.J. Simpson is not really a parallel because O.J. Simpson was a, a civil suit brought by the relatives of the victims. The, the real parallel would be the Rodney King case. Okay. Um, in the Rodney King case, the officers who beat Rodney King actually did go to trial, um, and they were acquitted. It was a state proceeding. It was in Simi Valley, California, a very conservative bedroom community, hmm. uh, and the officer with a lot of officers, and uh, and they they acquitted um, the officers of any uh, any Rodney. crimes regarding the Rodney King beating, and then what happened was that the federal um, authorities filed federal civil rights charges against the officers, and they were convicted. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, one of the, another parallel is that um, in the Rodney King beating, there was a videotape yeah. of it. Um, George Halliday, who was a, just a, you know, an average person, happened to capture this beating on videotape, or it never you know, wouldn't have gone viral in the same way that the videotape of the beating, uh, of, of the, the killing of Eric Garner by Officer Pantaleo in um, in Staten Island, right. went viral. And in the state case, in the Rodney King state case, what the defense, the defense of the officer's defense, did was to call an expert who isolated each frame of that video uh-huh. and said that particular blow was justified. 
because of X. That particular blow is justified because of Y, and 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 by and really dissected it as opposed to looking at the enormity of this horrible beating, which many of us saw. Yes. Um, and so I have no doubt that if this um, the the uh, New York case, the killing of Eric Garner, ever did go to a um, a jury trial, that the defense might well bring some kind of a so-called expert to to say, well, that particular move by the officer was justified, and that particular move was justified. Yeah, and I've had people ask in the Eric Garner case, how else could they have gotten him to the ground except with the the chokehold? Was that not the only option there? And we've shifted a little bit, but it's, it's a very similar case, and the people are protesting now, after the early December decision on, on Eric Garner, that uh, lack of an indictment, even though I believe it was ruled a homicide, you know, that a, a homicide means killing a, a human being. And yeah, so, yes, the question is whether it was a justifiable homicide. It was a homicide because it wasn't a suicide. It wasn't right. an accident. Right. Um, but, you know, why did he even have to wrestle him to the ground? I mean, you can see that videotape as well as I can. Oh, yeah, um, it was filmed. And, and uh, it, you know, I didn't see anything. I've watched it several times indicating that Eric Garner was at all a threat to those officers. And why were they harassing him about selling some loose cigarettes? I mean, why did it take all those officers? There were several officers. It wasn't just right. Officer Pantaleo, although the, all the other officers were given immunity. Um, they would probably wouldn't be given immunity in a federal proceeding because it's a different sovereign. Um, but it's you know the the cause of death was compression of the neck, chest, and a chokehold. And a chokehold is 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 illegal yes. in the NY uh, Police Department, New York Police Department. So you know if this and this is also being investigated for possible possible federal charges, it could come think. out very very differently if there was a true independent review of the evidence. Yeah, it's amazing to me. I mean, it's clearly a chokehold, which is clearly and unquestionably against New York law. I, it, it amazes me how this could be done. And that's why, of course, there's this protest for, for both of these things. Uh, and again, Marjorie Cohen, you quote uh, San Francisco public defender Jeff Adachi. Very interesting quote from him. He says, Wilson's description of Brown as a demon with superhuman strength and unremitting rage and his description of the neighborhood as hostile illustrate implicit racial bias that taints use of force decisions, unquote. Your comments on this. And In other words, is there cause to accept that racial profiling and prejudice did affect what should have been a fair and unbiased judicial proceeding? I don't think there's any doubt about it, Bert. Um, when you know the Wall Street Journal just reported that I think, if I'm not mistaken, 550 police killings went unreported. They're covering it up. This is, you know, we we think this is just rare, and we hear about it once in a while. Those are the ones that become public, but this happens all the time. Um, and in fact, African Americans are 21 times more likely to be shot by police than whites in the United States. Um, so I don't think there's any doubt that the overreaction of Wilson in this case, uh, and uh, in fact, you know, looked look, look to me like a provocation by Wilson, um, was, uh, what, you know, was based on, uh, on racism, um, pure and simple. Wow. And that's, of course, de- well, it can be done in, in a civil case, denying his, uh, the, the person's civil rights, that's for sure. Now, 
the question of Officer Wilson fearing for his safety, and a lot of people say, and and this is often the case, that officers uh, do face very hostile situations, and they do often fear for their safety. It, it, this question, if he was legitimately fearing for his safety, is important. How was this question dealt with by the grand jury? Well, the question is, is the officer's fear reasonable? The, right, the whole right. The whole issue is whether the officer acted reasonably. And if this officer is racist and is looking at the situation through the prism of racial bias, then his fear is going to be, he's going to be much more fearful than someone who was not racist. Um, now, it's supposed to be an, an objective standard. Right. Is this objectively reasonable, not whether he subjectively was fearful? Um, but did he overreact, or did he reasonably fear for his safety? And that's where the conflict among the witnesses comes in, and that's why there should be complete adversarial testing through cross-examination of all of these witnesses in front of an open public jury to determine what really did happen. Boy, no question about that. It has to be looked at, and it's certainly over the next few months, if not years, this case, uh, the grand jury proceeding, uh, the uh, what the uh, press conference of Robert McCulloch will be gone through with a fine-tooth comb. How possible might it be in the future that there could be some charge of cover-up, an actual cover-up? We all know that covering up a crime is a crime in and of itself. Is it uh, way off the wall to think that perhaps there could be uh, charges relating to uh, a a cover-up by McCullough of what he knew uh, really happened? You know, it's very, very hard to prove because prosecutorial discretion is is unbridled. Um, Mm There have been Supreme Court cases where they've ruled that uh, judges cannot tell prosecutors what charges to file. And uh, and so I think I think that would be very very difficult. Now uh, McCullough is certainly going to come under um, public criticism and already has for racial bias and for steering this grand jury away from an indictment of Darren, Darren Wilson. Mm-hmm. But in terms of actually proving a cover up, I think it would be very very difficult. You know, unless some of the deputy district attorneys came in and testified that McCulloch told us specifically to manipulate this. They're not going to do that. Right, right. That would be a bit much. Well, again, this is not the end of the line for the uh, Ferguson grand jury case, and it's not the end of the line for the Staten Island uh, killing of of Eric Garner. What what do you think uh, are the possibilities for justice for for Eric Garner. What are the next steps for him, and what are the next steps, do you think, for the uh, uh, Michael Brown case? Well, I think at this point, um, there there is this um, this Missouri statute saying that, and this is, the, this is the Michael Brown case, that a special prosecutor could be appointed if the state prosecutor is interested, has an interest or a bias. Um, and there is a case out of Missouri um, that says that you know that a similar situation, this racial bias would constitute would come under that statute. So that's one possibility. Is to, if 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 people can convince a judge to appoint a special prosecutor to convene a new grand jury in the Michael Brown case, mm-hmm. that's one possibility. I don't know how likely that right. is. Um, the other possibility, and this is for both um, the Michael Brown case and the Eric Garner case, is 
that um, at, at the conclusion of the federal investigation that possibly federal civil rights charges might be brought um, against these officers. But uh, and and so so we'll see. You know, it's it's not easy to prove the officer um, was acting out of racial bias. No, That's sure. what what the what the most uh, the biggest hurdle will be. Um, but again, there is so much public pressure. I mean, people, we're going to see these protests um, mushroom coming, you know, uh, uh, just a little bit over a week after the Michael Brown grand jury decision um, and then, then the Eric Garner decision, or deciding not to, to indict, um, has spawned tremendous protest across the country. And that protest will inevitably have some kind of effect on this whole process. Oh, that's interesting. Oftentimes people uh, believe uh, their protests don't mean anything, and it's possible the protests could just die down and and go away. Marjorie Cohn, do you think, uh, this is going out looking in the crystal ball, will these decisions stand, or do you think, uh, with your knowledge of of, uh, legal processes and legal history, uh, do you think they will that there will be uh, convictions or other action which could, in essence, reverse uh, the grand jury decisions in the Eric Garner and the Michael Brown case. Do you think it will stand as it is on both of them? It's it's very hard to say. I, know, but I'll ask I think anyway. that when you have a videotape right. of Eric Garner being killed by these police, um, it's much more difficult to say, well, we're not going to go any further with it. So it may be that there's a slightly better chance of a federal trial, federal civil rights prosecution in that case. But I, mm. I think there's a very, very strong uh, case to be made that there should be a federal civil rights um, uh, case brought against Darren Wilson as well in the Michael Brown case. I don't have a crystal ball. Right. Um, these things take many, many months. I mean, the federal investigation is still proceeding, um, even though Michael Brown was killed in August. Uh, it doesn't happen overnight, right. uh, but it remains to be seen what will happen. And protests do make a difference? I think they do. I really think they do. Um, it's supposed to be, you know, just a, a legal proceeding right. um, without any uh, any public pressure. Public pressure is not supposed to figure into these legal decisions, but um, just the same way that the Supreme Court justices will... Uh, get on the you know get on the the stand and be sworn when they're they're being nominated to be on the Supreme Court and say oh my views on abortion and the death penalty uh, aren't going to figure in at all they do yes. um you know the, the the law does not exist in a vacuum it's not a sterile concept and so when human beings are making these decisions federal prosecutors judges etc um they they turn on the TV at night they are well aware of what people, you know, that that people are in the streets. And I'm not saying that that's going to turn the tide, but I think uh, that certainly would be a consideration uh, in the back of some people's minds. Well, thank you so much once again for shedding light into this uh, legal, uh, oh, spaghetti. It's kind of confusing in there, but uh, this has been very helpful. Thank you, Marjorie Cohen, for being with us once again on The Burt Cohen Show. My pleasure, Burt. And maybe justice will come in the meantime. There's going to be some solidarity in favor of justice. Email me, Bert at BertCohen.com. Thanks for listening.
joined to serve the common cause So it feeds us all forever See to it that it's now yours Forward without forgetting Where our strength can be seen now to be When starving or when eating It's forward, not forgetting Our solidarity Love 